Interestingly enough, as we know very well, Arjuna wanted to renounce action, wanted to renounce his duty. He came in the midst of battlefield with a determination to fight this battle and then something happened to him. He found himself overtaken by grief and sorrow and lost all the motivation of fighting the battle and he said to Lord Krishna, Nayotse, I will not fight this battle. Guru Nahatva hi Mahanubhavan Shreyo Bhoktam Bhaikshamapiharoke So rather than killing these Gurus, the Mahanubhavas, his great souled ones such as Bhishma, Drona, rather than killing them, I think it is better that I live a life of begging the food, that is, live the life of a renunciate, begging the food, I think that is better. So Arjuna felt that a life of renunciate was definitely better than a life which involved killing. So it involved the action that involved, it was duty of course for Arjuna, but that was a very unpleasant duty, because it involved the death of very near and dear ones. So then the question is, duty which is unpleasant on one hand, and renunciation of duty that appears to be rather comfortable. So for Arjuna, this option of giving up this battle was a very comfortable option because at least when he viewed this life of renunciate from where he was, from a grief-stricken mind, with the prospect of getting involved in the battle which would involve the killing of this near and dear ones and therefore the emotional pain that it would bring as compared to that the idea of giving up this battle and taking to the life of renunciate which involves no conflict at all that appeared to be definitely preferable to Arjuna and these statements also are to be understood as made with reference to what it is that Arjuna is seeking in life. Arjuna slowly got converted from a seeker of what we call a bhuda or material prosperity to a seeker of nishresa or spiritual prosperity. That conversion took place in the heart of Arjuna here in the battlefield. And why do we say that is because when he came he declared, he requested Lord Krishna is charioteer to place his chariot between the two armies so that he could survey both the armies and he could decide the last minute strategy of who it is with whom he is to fight. And he said, Dharvarashtrasya Durvuddehe Yuddhe Prechikirshavaha This Duryodhana who is Durvuddhi who is a wicked person and all these people who assembled here to help this wicked Duryodhana I want to see all of them. So that that showed his determination to fight the battle. And up to that point, fighting the battle, gaining victory, 
and the kingdom and the power and the pleasures that come along with it, all of that was very valuable to Arjuna. All of a sudden this set of values changed. When his heart was overtaken by grief, in some ways he had some kind of an insight about his own self, insight about what he was seeking, insight about the life, he got that insight. And he could see that this kingdom, this victory, kingdom, pleasures, all of that will not be able to remove the grief that he was feeling in his heart. He could see the limitations of all these achievements. Nakankshe Vijayam Krishna, Nasarajyam Sukhanicha, He Krishna, I do not desire to have, I do not wish to have a kingdom, or I do not have a victory, kingdom, or the pleasures. What is there in victory? What is there in kingdom? What is there in pleasures? So he says. And we would explain, and that this statement comes from a certain understanding that Arjuna has, rather than because he just wants to avoid this battle. And thus Arjuna did get some kind of an insight in the life that these achievements are limited, that he in fact desired something that was such that it cannot be accomplished through these achievements, that the pain that he was feeling, the inadequacy that he was feeling in his heart could not be removed even by all the material accomplishments. At one point he even tells Lord Krishna that even if I get the kingdom of the whole, the whole universe, if I get the kingdom of all the three worlds, if I get the kingdom even of heavens, that I get the unrivaled kingdom of the whole world, and even the kingdom of the heavens, if I get all of that, then also I do not see how the pain that I am feeling in my heart, it can be removed. I do not see any way out. And that is the reason why Arjuna did not want to fight the battle, because he did not see any purpose. He did not see the purpose with reference to what he now wanted. The battle had a purpose to serve with reference to what he wanted earlier in terms of victory and kingdom. The battle, definitely fighting the battle, was a means of achieving that. But now he realizes that the, the inadequacy that he is feeling cannot be removed by this kingdom, by this victory also. Then what's the purpose of fighting? And also it was a very unpleasant task, as we said, it involved the killing of kiss and kin, and emotionally very unpleasant, very painful. And therefore, he wanted to renounce this duty, and you cannot renounce unless officially you do that, formally, and unless formally you undergo the process of renunciation, and take your life of renunciate, you cannot do that, and therefore, he showed a preference for the life of renunciate, which is called sannyasa. And Lord Krishna, in fact, is teaching sannyasa or renunciation throughout the Bhagavad Gita. For the simple reason, as we also discussed in the morning, it is not that we have to acquire freedom, it is not that we have to create happiness, it is that the freedom and happiness are obtaining facts about our own self and what we really have to do in our life is to remove obstacles somehow which prevent me, which deprive me of owning up that happiness and freedom which is my nature. There are some obstacles which deprive me of that owning up and in fact all we have to do is to remove those obstacles. We have to give up something. And that is, that is called renunciation. So Lord Krishna is teaching us renunciation so that we give up things which are obstacles and thus own up our true nature. And renunciation also of not anything tangible as Lord Krishna will teach in this chapter also. It is not that there is something tangible that we have to give up. These obstacles that are there are very subjective obstacles. Obstacles in the form of, as we said, various notions and conclusions that I have about myself and about the life. And these notions, these conclusions, these complexes are born of ignorance of myself, ignorance about the life. <coughs> and that's all we have to do, is to give up these notions, these conclusions, these complexes. 
which are born of ignorance. We have to get rid of the ignorance. So, therefore, Vedas looks upon the life of a human being as a process of getting rid of things rather than a process of acquiring. Getting rid of that which is a burden or an obstacle to me rather than acquiring something which I do not have. This is how the Vedas or Vedanta perceives the process for a human being to be able to accomplish the end or the goal that the human being is seeking. There's no question that every human being is seeking freedom. There's no question that every human being is seeking happiness. In fact, every living being is seeking freedom and happiness. There's no question, no exception. And as we also said, that the freedom or the happiness that I am seeking is unconditional freedom. Freedom, there is no condition. That is, happiness, there is no condition. So today also I do feel free now and then, I do feel happy now and then. There are moments of freedom, moments of happiness and experience, but I know the happiness that I experience is always conditional, is subject to fulfillment of a number of conditions. The basic condition being that everything should be agreeable to me, everything should be in accordance with my desire or my demand. And when I find myself in an atmosphere which is very agreeable, which is very accepting of me, I feel a sense of freedom, happiness. But then when that condition is not met, then again that freedom or the happiness goes away. So today I find that happiness is, sub- is subject to many conditions. It is conditional happiness or conditional freedom that I experience. In fact, even in the freedom or the happiness that I experience, some dependence is always there. Because I want total independence. And so, and of course, Vedanta tells us that freedom that you are seeking is your own self. You don't have to acquire it, you just have to discover it as yourself. <coughs> and therefore, as you said, this process is only one of getting rid of things, getting rid of nothing tangible, getting rid of those notions which are born of ignorance. It's a process of getting rid of ignorance, which manifests itself in the form of various conclusions and notions. And therefore, the main process is knowledge, knowing. Knowing a notion or as notion is a notion. A false notion is a false notion. That's all we have to do. And then it drops. So what is a notion or a false thing? I take it to be real. I take it to be right and that's how my life is being led. So as you said, what I do in my life is nothing but a a manifestation or nothing but working out whatever conclusions and notions I have. That is why Vedanta addresses that very fundamental very fundamental cause which brings about all the activities and that are my conclusions of life and that is what Vedanta addresses with the conclusions I have about myself the conclusions I have about the world or God are these right? and so this inquiry is the inquiry that is performed by Vedanta looking in, I'm inquiring into the truth of myself the truth of the world the truth of God so that any notions, false notions that are born out of ignorance, they can drop. <coughs> so Lord Krishna is teaching renunciation. The amazing thing is, the ironical thing is, Arjuna wants to renounce action, but Lord doesn't want him to renounce. On one hand, Lord Krishna is teaching renunciation, at the same time discouraging Arjuna from renouncing action. Now this is, this is, Arjuna is something Arjuna cannot understand. And that is how the fifth chapter begins with a question on the part of Arjuna, which he doesn't understand. So on one hand you are praising sannyasa, on one hand you are praising the renunciation of action by praising the renunciate as to how the renunciate is totally free, and you present him as the very goal of life, as a role model or the goal of life. On the other hand, you ask me to perform actions. You ask me to perform my duty. So, this is what confuses Arjuna. And he does not understand that 
Lord Krishna is teaching renunciation even through the performance of duty. So even when Lord Krishna says, may you perform your duty, may you perform your appointed duty, in that also a process of renunciation is involved. So what we call karma yoga, performing karma or our duties with the spirit of yoga, with the spirit of offering to the Lord, with the selfless spirit. So that very spirit itself is the spirit of renunciation. In short, renunciation is a spirit rather than a particular action. Traditionally, renunciation is always equate to an action, a willful action of giving up the duties. Whereas Lord Krishna wants to teach that it is not merely giving up the duties that, that amounts to renunciation, but it is a very spirit and that spirit can be practiced or that spirit can be observed even while performing actions. And so Lord Krishna says that renunciation is what I am teaching, but renunciation is in several stages. So first stage of renunciation is while performing action, second stage of renunciation is while giving up action, first stage of renunciation is while giving up the person who performs the, the, very, the very notion of the doership. So you find that Bhagavad, in Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna teaches renunciation in three stages. And each stage becomes a preparation for the next stage. Ultimately, renunciate is the one who has even denounced the notion of doership, that I am even performing an activity, I am performing an action, that I am a doer of an action, I am an agent of an action, even that also is a notion. This is what Lord Krishna taught. For me to think that I am performing a given action, that's the notion, that I does not perform any action at all. In the third chapter, Lord Krishna said, Prakrutesh kriyamanani gunesh karmani sarvasaha ahankara vimudhatma kartahamiti manyate. Here, Jina, in fact, all the actions are performed by prakriti, by the matter, by the personality. That is, this body, sense organs, mind, intellect, this complex that we have, which is what we call the personality, which is the product of matter, that is what performs all the actions. It is by the modification of matter that all the actions are performed. And even when the actions are performed at the level of personality, at the level of the body-mind complex, the self remains, ever remains actionless. It is only in the presence of the self, in presence of the consciousness that all the actions are performed, but that the self or the consciousness is not a participant in the action. It is true that without the self an action cannot be performed. However, still, self or the consciousness is not a participant in action. Just as without electricity a fan cannot run, but it is not that electricity rotates the fan, it is that in the presence of electricity, the fan rotates. So rotation takes place in the presence of electricity. Without electricity that cannot happen. And so what happens is, whenever we switch on the electricity, then the fan runs. Therefore we conclude that it is electricity that is running it. In fact, it is only in the presence of electricity the fan runs. Of course, without electricity, fan cannot run. But there is no effort on the part of electricity. There is no will or deliberation on the part of electricity to rotate the fan. It's merely in presence of electricity the fan rotates. That's an example. No example is perfect, of course. This is an example, as close as you can get. Because people take the examples and then, you know, a lot of, sometimes examples are given to clear, clear up things, create more confusion. Because which part of the example we should pay attention, that's very important. Whenever illustration is given, is one, some part of the illustration is intended. Otherwise it will be like this, you know, we, every time we tell the story of the tenth man. In every class or every session that story of tenth man will be told, the tenth boys are going for a picnic and then they came across the river and then they swam across the river. And the leader who was there decided to verify if all of them are safely. He asked his friends to line up. He counted them all. He counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 
And then he said, hey, we were ten when we left, how come we are nine? And thus each one of them counted in turn, and each one of them came to the same conclusion, there are only nine. And therefore they concluded that the tenth man is lost, and they started searching for the tenth man, and the search went on for the whole day, and then they could not find the tenth man, and so disappointed, they were sitting and they were seated in the tree, and so very sad, not knowing what to do, what shall we do after we go back to our home, what reply shall we give to the parents of this lost boy? Without any idea of who that lost boy is, or what is the description, that nobody had, but then it was a conclusion that the tenth boy is lost. At that time an old man happened to pass by and saw these boys, they were all weeping. Say, what's the matter, children? And they said, how one of us is lost? How did you determine that one of you is lost? Hey, we counted. How did you count? He demonstrated. He again asked his friends to line up and then he counted again in presence of the old man. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. See, we are only nine. The old man says, don't worry. The tenth boy is here. I'll show you where he is. Really, will you show us where he is? He says, yes, count again. Now this time with all the hope, expectation and faith he counted. Again, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. With all expectation, he looks at this old man and says, nine. So you are the tenth man. No, now he realizes I'm the tenth man. I did not count myself. This is a story. So, after one of these classes, then we had a question-and-answer session. <laughs> and one person who was listening to Vedanta for several years, generally sitting in the front rows, he asked this question. He says, Swamiji, one question about the story. When you told that the story of the tenth boy six months ago, you said that a Swami came along and he, he, he instructed that you are the tenth man. And today you are telling us that an old man came along and he told them you are the tenth man. Which one is right? This was his question, you know. So since then I was so discouraged about the question and the sessions, really, you know. I thought it's better not to have them because then you, then there is a tremendous frustration. You think that things are being communicated so well, and they're all listening with all, you know, and then everything is getting across, and with ask the questions, then you really are shocked. But anyway, so this is how, what is the aspect of the illustration that should be taken, you know? When that is not, so what are the boundary conditions of an illustration? When that is not taken into account, then even illustration or example also can create confu more confusion than clearance. So similarly also, whenever examples are given, we must know which aspect of the example is applicable, because no example is ever perfect. If example was perfect in the sense that if example applied to what we want to illustrate in every way, then that itself will become the truth, which is never the case. Anyway, coming back to our example of electricity, how in presence of electricity the fan rotates, the bulb shines, the air conditioner works, how everything works in presence of electricity, whereas there is no kartrutvam, no sense of doership, no deliberation, no will on the part of electricity. Similarly also, the self is ever free from any doership, because doership involves a limitation. That I am a doer, that means I am characterized by being a doer, being an agent of action, and therefore also, I am responsible for the action and for the result. And also, I am the one who will experience the result of the action. In that sense, the doer becomes the enjoyer, and this, thus, he feels a sense of limitation, because he is different from every other doer. When I am an agent of an action, I am just an individual performing given action, and thus, I am different from everything else. There is a sense of limitation involved in any kind of a notion or conclusion about myself. So no doubt, this doer or enjoyer the various roles, but then the one who is in those roles are free from those roles. So this is ultimate renunciation, renunciation also of this notion that I am a performer, I am an agent of action, I am doer of action, I am an enjoyer, I am, I am, that is the, the ego or the sense of individuality is that which is ultimately 
meant to be renounced. And a process of renunciation leading up to that ultimate renunciation. As the verse goes, that as a father teaches his son, the son wanted to be to be enlightened. He knew that it is by a process of renunciation that you get enlightened. So he gave up everything that he had. He, he gave away all these possessions. He gave everything. And still that did not come. The enlightenment did not. He wanted to give up his body. Thinking that maybe I'll give up even my body. Then I'll be enlightened. Then his father says. That it's okay that you give up your wealth and give up various things. But having given up whatever it is that you want to give up. They give up the very given up. So having renounced everything, renounce the renouncer. What is meant by renouncing a renouncer is that renounce the very notion that you are an renouncer. Because self is not even a renunciate renouncer. Even that role or even that kind of an action is not performed. That I am a renunciate, even that idea also has to be dropped because any kind of a notion I have comes from the identification with my mind comes from the identification of my body. So when I give up something, that giving also is an action. And that action also takes place at the level of the mind. Only when I identify myself as the mind, that I will have this conclusion that I gave up something. So for me to think that I gave up something, that I am a renunciate, is also a notion that is born on account of identifying with my mind. So I keep identifying myself with the body, keep taking the body or equating myself with the body, equating myself with the mind, equating myself with the intellect, equating myself with this personality and thus so many notions have arisen. And so the only way to become free from these notions is to recognize that the self or the I is different from this personality. All the actions take place at the level of personality. And I'm the very presence, I'm very consciousness in whose presence actions take place. This recognition of the true nature of myself that is free from any doership, free from any enjoyership, free from any characteristic, and never free from any limitation, to recognize that nature of the self is the ultimate freedom, is the ultimate renunciation. So Lord Krishna teaches that the ultimate renunciation is of the nature of knowledge, recognizing the true nature of the self that is ever free. And that involves what we call the viveka, discrimination, separation between the self and the non-self. Right now, a lumping together has taken place where the non-self is taken to be the self. The body, mind, intellect, which is non-self, is taken to be self, and therefore these notions and conclusions arise. <coughs> so, this is how Lord Krishna is teaching renunciation through knowledge. As we say, renunciation or giving up is not a process. It is a recognition of the fact. And this recognition happens in stages, leading finally to the recognition that I am totally free, that I am actionless. So, recognition of actionless self is ultimate recognition. So, all along it is process of recognition, process of understanding, process of knowledge. Even what we call karma yoga or performs of karma with the, with the attitude of offering to the Lord is also nothing but a process of knowledge. And therefore it is knowledge that Lord Krishna is teaching. That's what in the fourth chapter Lord Krishna said, Sarvam karma karam partha jnane parisamapyade. He partha, he arjuna, all the karma ultimately culminates in the knowledge. All the karma or all action is a means of knowledge. When performed in a certain way, every action becomes a means of knowledge. Every action teaches us something. That is all. And so, jnanam or the knowledge is the primary means. Buddhau sharanaman vichya krupanaha phalahetavaha. In the second chapter, Lord Krishna said, May you take the refuge of knowledge. We understand that it is learning, knowing, understanding, which is the primary thing you have to do in the life. And whatever you do, may it become a means of that understanding, means of discovering the realities of life. That action also becomes a means of that knowledge. 
So when action becomes the means of the knowledge, it is called yoga, karma yoga. <coughs> but this master is not yet gotten through, I'm got across to Arjuna, and he is still this is not clear. On one hand, I want to give up the action, I want to renounce the action, and you are also praising the renunciation, and still asking me to perform the action. So this contradiction, Arjuna, I cannot understand. And that is how the fifth chapter opens with a question of Arjuna, which shows, again, his confusion with reference to what it is that he should do. What should I do? So let us read the first verse, and thus it will become clear what it is that Arjuna is asking here. Arjuna Uvacha Arjuna Uvacha Sanyasam Karmanam Krishna Sanyasam Karmanam Krishna Punar Yogam Chashamsasi Punar Yogam Chashamsasi Yachreya Eta Yorekam Yachreya Eta Yorekam Tanme Bruhisunishitam Tanme Bruhisunishitam Arjuna Vacha, Arjuna said, and he said, there is a reason why Arjuna asked this question, because of what has been told to him. Sanyasam Karmanam Krishna, He Krishna, addressing Lord Krishna, <coughs> Sanyasam Karmanam Shamsasi, Shamsasi, you praise, see the translation, Shamsasi, you praise. Sanyasam karmanam, renunciation of action. Sanyasam, renunciation, karmanam of action. You praise renunciation of action. Punaha, and again, yogam cha shamsasi, and also you praise the karma yoga. So praise both the renunciation of action as well as the karma, the performance of action. So what is it that I should do, Arjuna? This is the question. Because you are praising both the things that are opposed to each other. Renunciation of action means giving up action. And karma yoga means performance of the action. So giving up of the action and performance of action, they cannot be done by the same person at the same time. While Lord Krishna is addressing Arjuna, even though Lord Krishna is addressing Arjuna, in fact, is addressing everybody. And so sometimes you look upon Arjuna as a qualified person, sometimes as, you know, so different ways, in fact. So we have to understand the purport of every verse as to who it is that the verse is addressed to. Sometimes verse talks about a, a, a person who is, is, who is perfected himself, that means one who abides in knowledge, one is totally liberated, that person is sometimes talked about. Sometimes Lord Krishna talks about a seeker, one who is, who is seeking to become liberated. And sometimes Lord Krishna talks about one who does not even have that basic discrimination. So we find three kinds of persons are talked about in Bhagavad Gita. One who is impulsive, meaning one who acts out of impulse. Not out of deliberation, not out of discrimination, but out of impulse. We call him aviveki, non-discriminative person. Second is a person who is a viveki, a discriminative person, who acts out of deliberation. The impulses are there, but he does not surrender himself to the impulses, that is, he is not swayed or controlled by the impulses, but then he brings to play his sense of discrimination, the faculty of choice and analysis, and does what he considers right. This is a deliberate person. We call him the seeker, a sadhaka, or a seeker, or a mumakshu, a seeker of liberation. And third is the person who is spontaneous, who is spontaneously right or spontaneously good. The seeker is one who is deliberately trying to be right. 
while a perfected sage is the one who is spontaneously right. So an impulsive person, a deliberate person, a spontaneous person. So first conversion that should take place is from an impulsive person to a deliberate person. And second transformation that should take place is from a deliberate person to a spontaneous person. <coughs> and therefore, in some verses, Lord Krishna will be talking about an impulsive person. Some, often he talks about the deliberate one. And sometimes he also talks about the spontaneous one. And therefore, when Lord Krishna talks about renunciation and action, maybe he talks about, talks keeping in mind one kind of a seeker. And when he talks about performance of action, he says that keeping in mind another kind of a seeker. Because there are seekers at different levels of maturity. In the scheme that is taught by the Vedas, is that a life is a process of gaining that emotional maturity or the spiritual maturity. Discovering the inner freedom, discovering the inner purity. So thus life becomes, if, we, if life is led properly or intelligently, in keeping with the teaching of the scriptures, then it becomes a process of maturity. Process of what we call inner growth, process of inner purification. And so Lord says here that when a person has gained a certain degree of inner purification, what we call a certain amount of inner maturity, when one has gained essentially a control over one's impulses, then that person is ready to give up the action. So the Vedas do recognize that a time comes in the life of a seeker when he can renounce all the duties. <coughs> Not until then. And so duty is a concept that Vedas teach us. That an action is performed in the spirit of what we call duty. <coughs> And that everybody has a duty to perform. See, duty, duty also is called obligatory duty. That there are obligatory duties in our life. And the idea of obligatory obligation involves that I am a recipient of something already and then I am obliged to return it back. I am obliged to repay. And so, Vedas look upon the life of human being as a process of repaying all the obligations that are done to him, all the privileges that he has been receiving. And so, let this life become a process of returning the, the privilege, returning the favor. Already I am person who is favored, and that the action that I perform may become a process of returning the favor. This is how Vedas look upon the life of a human being. So Vedas look upon the life of human being as a spiritual pursuit, not as a pursuit of material ends. That matter should become a means of spirit rather than the other way around. <coughs> that is a spirit that should really be predominant and matter should be subservient. <coughs> matter is wonderful, useful, needed for many things, but in any case matter should always be subservient to the spirit. <coughs> And so, the concept of duty, the con they say that they looked upon, looks upon the life as a spiritual process or spiritual growth because a human being is a spiritual being. Every being is spiritual being, of course. Everything is spiritual. Really speaking, matter also ultimately is spiritual only in as much as spirit is the true nature of matter. So when the Vedas say saram khalavidam brahma, everything is brahma. Brahma means spirit or consciousness, intelligence, that everything is ultimately only intelligence or everything is consciousness, everything is spiritual, everything is divine, this is the vision of the scriptures. And that is what we have to discover. So really ultimately speaking even the division of spirit and matter also do not remain. Ultimately even division of self and non-self, they also don't remain. We just start with those kind of divisions of self and non-self, spirit and matter, person and personality. We start with that kind of a division, okay. 
but ultimately even those divisions also erase and what remains is nothing but spirit or consciousness or the self <coughs> this is how the scriptures lead us but to begin with we recognize as two spirit and matter and that in my life it is spirit spirit that should predominate and not the matter <coughs> and for that vedas prescribe a life of what we call duty the every human being has duties to perform the duties are because every human being is a recipient of a number of privileges and this we have talked about number of times in the past how there are three fold runa or the three kinds of debts the pitru runa rushi runa dev runa that is i am indebted to my parents my ancestors for having given me the gift of the body and nurtured it nourished it raised it and therefore i am indebted to them <coughs> rushi runa the debt to the sages and the teachers i am indebted to all the sages and teachers of the past and the present who dedicated their life to the pursuit of knowledge and have made this whole body of knowledge available to me from which i draw freely i don't have to reinvent the wheel i don't have to start from square one i start from where they have left off as swami dayanand says that we are riding on the shoulders of giants so they are the giants the sages who already give us this storehouse of knowledge and from there we begin so that's a great privilege we are enjoying and therefore our life should be a reflection of returning that favor also and thirdly the whole universe is constantly serving me the nature is constantly serving me nature in the form of these five elements the space air fire water earth all the elements are constantly serving me the earth supports me gives me food the water also quenches my thirst removes the dirt the fire also cooks my food and gives me the warmth the air sustains my life the space gives me accommodation the sun illumines my path the moon gives me the pleasure and everything every atom also every plant every animal every creature directly or indirectly contributes something to my well-being to the extent that the trees give out the carbon um, oxygen and take away the carbon dioxide in this there is what we call a symbiosis a harmony a total harmony prevailing in the whole universe and i am the beneficiary of all the privileges that the whole universe imparts to me <coughs> and therefore my life is not a life of demanding but a life of offering because already i am a recipient of the privileges and the benefits and therefore i should discover that and there would arise in me a sense of gratitude so life based on what we call duty rather than based on demands so duty versus the demand rights versus the demands and so anyway it is my duty to do things because already i am the recipient of these privileges so recognition of this fact makes my life a process of fulfilling my duties fulfilling my obligations so that's the spirit so vedas believe that a very spirit of the duty very spirit of this fulfillment of my obligation very spirit of debt or runa that very spirit is a purifying spirit so that requires me to to uh, take into account the needs of others so whenever i am i am performing my duty for someone like duty towards my parents or ancestors a duty towards my teachers a duty towards other elements of nature i should bring to account their need and try to fulfill their need and therefore all along this idea of duty requires me to be sensitive to the needs and requirements of others sensitive to what help and i'm getting from them what privileges i'm enjoying and sensitive to how i should repay that a life of repaying life of giving life of offering and that of course requires me to very often set aside my own needs set aside my own comforts at the cost of my comfort i may look after the comfort of someone else so this is the spirit 
to the extent that we can observe the spirit, to that extent, as I said, uh, I become a giver rather than a, a demanding person, I become a giving person. So life which is based on a giving model rather than a demanding model. This is what Vedas teach. This is the spirit of the life. This is a spiritual life. So a person becomes spiritual merely by living this kind of life. So very often spirituality is con confused with only religious practices that when I am performing some rituals or doing something religious, then oh, I am a spiritual person. Religion is fine, but then this very spirit that arises from a recognition of my place in the scheme of things. A sense of gratitude that arises in me on account, on account of recognition of the fact that I am already enjoying that grace, already enjoying that favor, already enjoying privileges. And therefore I perform my actions with a sense of gratitude to return those favors. This is, this very spirit is the spiritual life. That is how the spiritual life begins. is based on duty. Everybody performs a duty. Husband performs a duty towards wife and wife performs a duty towards husband and parents towards the children and children towards parents. Everybody is tied to one another by this bond of duty. Ideally by bond of law but at least bond of duty. And so the nice thing about it is, of course, the question is, I keep on performing duty, what happens to me? Then I keep on giving and giving and giving, what happens to me? Who takes care of me? That's a very valid question also. We hope that everybody performs their duty. If everybody performs duty, then this problem will not arise. Because if parents perform their duty towards children, then parents' duty becomes the rights of the children. Then children perform their duty towards parents, then the duty of children becomes the rights of the parents. So my duty becomes your right and your duty becomes my right and therefore right is automatically taken care of when the spirit of duty is observed by everybody concerned. If there are some people who might find it very convenient to keep on receiving the duties, you know, the, the other people's services without, without responding back in, in, in that way, then becomes a problem, which becomes a problem. Because very often it happens that people find it very convenient. Somebody is performing their duty and I find it very convenient. And I also find it convenient not to respond with the, with the spirit of duty. Then there is an exploitation. Then a lot of things happen, which do happen. So the spirit of duty is a, very, is a very demanding spirit. And that requires, as they say, that other people also should cooperate. Everybody should pitch in into the scheme of things. When that does not happen, then people feel, you know, suffer from a sense of exploitation. It does happen. But ideally, as I said, this spirit of duty is a spirit of involves, spirit of offering or giving. So giving mode of life rather than a demanding mode of life. A cooperating mode of life rather than a competing mode of life. So they teach the spirit of cooperation rather than a spirit of competition. When there is demanding mode of life, there is going to be competition. When there is giving mode of life, there is going to be cooperation. In cooperation, no stresses. Everybody feels supported when there is cooperation. In competition, always stresses because I never feel supported. I am only on my own and I have to fend for myself. <clears throat> I have to always protect myself, defend myself, and therefore I am always aggressive. So anyway, that is how the Vedas teach a life of cooperation. And that's the spirit of beauty. Even what we call this whole, the, the Varanashana Vyavastha, the order, of the caste and order of the stages of life, all of that also was based on the spirit of cooperation only. It will not work in the spirit of competition, and it doesn't work. It moment this thing came, it stopped working, and it became a big obstacle. The caste system, etc., which is highly criticized today, 
is not meant to fulfill the kind of thing that we want from it. So every system is designed for a certain purpose. And they say, as far as the Vedas are concerned, and all scriptures are concerned, they look upon all the teachers always, all the great teachers when they were taught to the human beings, is always, they look upon the human being as a seeker of liberation, seeker of freedom, seeker of perfection. Then they look upon the life of human being as a spiritual process and not as a material process. <coughs> and therefore it becomes difficult to follow teaching of any teacher. Because they all teach us to give up, to renounce in some way or the other. Whether it is Jesus Christ, whoever it is. They always, directly, always renunciation is involved, giving up is involved. Something I am holding on to, attachments are given up. So words may be different, but it is the same teaching. And that does not work when there is a spirit of demand, when the goal of my life is this material fulfillment, when comfort and pleasure, when that becomes the goal of my life, none of these values will be practical. So they tell us, Swami, this teaching is not practical. These values are not practical. They are not practical. Depends on what we mean by practical. If by practical we mean that we want to have the aspiration of comfort and pleasure, that is the goal of our life, earth and karma are the goal of life, then dharma is not practical. If moksha is the goal of life, then dharma is practical. Therefore this caste system was not practical, is not practical. Is not practical. In fact, any system can be abused by the people who are self-centered. When, they exp- when the power, so power or might, is meant to protect the weak and not exploit the weak. When I use my mind to exploit them, then the mind becomes the it becomes is abused. And that's the reason why this system of caste, etc., has not worked. It is because it has been abused. But what I am trying to say here is that the whole teaching and the and the system, this the social, you know, organization that the Vedas gave was all based on looking upon a human being as a spiritual seeker. As life was looked upon as a process of discovering the inner freedom, process of discovering the inner happiness, because that is where the freedom and happiness are, and not where the human being is searching for them. And so, however, as a result of performing these duties for a length of time, as you say, performance of duty involves a spirit of giving up, involves a spirit of renunciation, renouncing my own little comforts for the sake of comfort of others. And so, there is a spirit of renunciation in the performance of actions with the spirit of duty. In course of time, this person grows into a maturity where he has largely become free from his attachments and aversions and has discovered a certain amount of inner freedom, a certain amount of inner happiness, a certain amount of inner contentment. There's another problem, Swami. If everybody is contented, then what will happen to this world? What will happen to the progress? So those who are hung up with the progress, you know, they always have this question, what will happen to the progress? So Swami Dhananji explains what is meant by progress is only by converting luxury into necessities. And so, this increasing necessity, that's, that seems to progress. That kind of progress nobody needs. If by progress we mean creating the, you know, the comfort facilities, that's fine, that progress will never suffer. It is not that progress arises only because of my need. I can do things for the need of others also. People feel that when I become free from need, then I will not do anything. Not necessarily. Then alone I will have the leisure to respond to the needs of others. Nothing will happen to progress, nothing will happen to the world. In fact, it will be a better place all along. If person discovers that inner contentment, which is which is truth. Atmanieva, Atmana Tushtaha. Bhagavad Gita describes a wise man as a person who has discovered total contentment with himself or herself because that is the nature of the self. And so, in the process of this performance of duties, <coughs> A time comes when there is no further need of performing duties. Because reason for performing duties is, as we said, an inner growth, an inner contentment, an inner purification. 
becoming free from these likes and dislikes. That is what this accomplishes. And when I find that, I have essentially become free from likes and dislikes, that now the impulses do not control me. That I want to manage my likes and dislikes. Even if I am not totally free from them, let us say I can manage them. Even though I may not be totally free from impulses, but I manage them. I do not come under sway. I have gained that essential freedom from my own impulses, then I am ready now to renounce the action, renounce the duties, and continue that process of renunciation at a different level, at the level of what we call vichara or inquiry, at the level of what we call the pursuit of knowledge. So, so far the pursuit of knowledge was through the performance of action and from the life, and second stage is pursuit of knowledge through the scriptures. Understand that even karma yoga also is nothing but pursuit of knowledge. Because life keeps on teaching me. When I have this attitude of giving, attitude of receiving everything is prasad buddhi as gift of God, then it will teach me. I will see how everything is really gift of God. I will see how everything is grace. I keep discovering that in my life. So life becomes a process of discovering. Process of learning and growing, even when we when we live the life of karma yoga, and that the learning is pursued at a different level. It is pursued now at level of learning through scriptures, <coughs> and that requires a different kind of a setup. That active setup, when I am busy from morning till evening, fulfilling the various demands of the duty, is not a very conducive mode of life for learning the scriptures or for being able to gain an abidance in the knowledge and therefore the Vedas do prescribe in fact or they permit let us say a mode of life where renunciation of action is taken place a mode of life that is primarily dedicated to the study of learning and contemplation a life of learning, study and contemplation that's the second phase of life where I can't study I can't live a life of study in contemplation if there are demands upon me as long as I'm a part of a setup there are going to be demands upon me if I'm a part of a family let us say there are going to be demands upon me because I, I get the support of the family I must I must also respond in kind and so when I seek the support of a setup, it becomes my duty to also repay, you know, or to respond in the manner to support the setup. That is why becoming free from every setup. Even family also is a setup. Social structure also is a setup. That caste and such system also is a setup. So second stage is renunciation of duty, renunciation of setup. Thus he becomes totally free from any kind of demands of fans on him. The society also has no demands on him. In short, this person totally becomes free from any demands on him or her with reference to the duties. It's only when the mind is free from demand that we can, we have the leisure, we have the inner leisure to apply, to study the scriptures and contemplate upon them. In short, this life of study of scriptures which is called Sankhya, that requires a mind that enjoys leisure, which has nothing else, no other agenda, nothing else to do. That mind is free to study and live a life of study and contemplation. It <coughs> is understood now that there are two kinds of difficulties we have, two kinds of distractions are the two things actually disturb our mind. One is all this demand from outside. Father says do this, mother says do this, this fellow says do this, and doing, doing, you know. Because I, I find myself in a setup, I have a duty to perform. So there is externally, external demand placed upon me. Another set of demand is internal demand. My own impulses make me do things. So ordinarily, even to do, still also I am not quiet because my inner restlessness and discomfort compels me to do things. But as a result of this karma yoga or the life of beauty, when one has essentially become free from that inner restlessness, 
He is no more bothered by those inner impulses. He is not impulses. Then alone that person is ready to give up the demands placed upon him by the outer structure. You understand? Because if I become, I, I, can, I have the freedom to give up all my duties and I become renunciate, but I cannot really pursue the knowledge, I cannot study the scriptures if my mind does not enjoy the tranquility. If all kinds of desires and all kinds of anger, etc. keep on arising in my mind, then you, you know, this is not possible to study. It happens to people sometimes. They go with all enthusiasm to Gurukulam to study. And what happens, the very atmosphere of Gurukulam is such that you have to face yourself. As long as I am in my home, as long as I am in the, uh, doing something, let's say working, so long I can avoid myself and I can keep myself busy, engaged in doing things. So that way, very often, this activity also becomes a, an escape distraction for people. But when I have given up all activities, then there is no way that I can avoid myself. I can't escape from myself. I have to face myself. And there I, I fall on my own lap, and that becomes a very difficult process. Then all kinds of impulses which are there inside, this run out, start surfacing. All kinds of anger which may be there, all kinds of injustice, all, all kinds of things people seem to have, and they all start surfacing. And that becomes a tremendous distraction. I mean, that does not allow my mind to study because it doesn't allow a, a leisure of the mind. Mind is restless, mind is disturbed. So it's better that I continue to perform my duty as long as these inner distractions are there, those impulses are there, and only when I have discovered an essential freedom from these impulses, that is when I should renounce action and not enter them. So first stage is stage of karma yoga. Second stage is renunciation of karma. Sanyasa is called karma sanyasa, renunciation of action. And still the first stage remains. The renunciation of action is done so that ultimately I renounce the doership. So karma sanyasa is to ultimately Kartrutva sannyasa the renunciation of the very sense of doership. That's the ultimate renunciation. And that's the real renunciation. So often Swami says, the renunciate has to become a renunciate. A sannyasa will become a sannyasa. What it means is that the person who has renounced karma has to still renounce even the sense of agency, sense of doership. And that is what happens in the process of study and contemplation among the scriptures. That's when the viveka, what we call atmanatma viveka, the discrimination between self and non-self that takes place, and I recognize myself as a self different from the non-self. When the atmanatma viveka, the discrimination takes place, that is when I become a renunciate totally, in the ultimate sense, in the primary sense. So really speaking, as far as Lord Krishna is concerned, who is a renunciate? That person who is free even from the sense of doership. That's the real renunciation. Therefore, vidvat sannyasa. Sannyasa or renunciation as a result of knowledge. The earlier one was renunciation as a result of will. I, I, by will I renounce the action. I, by will I take to life of a student. That culminates into renunciation of even that will. That's the ultimate renunciation. So, thus Lord Krishna teaches us renunciation at three levels. First of all, renunciation while performing action because if I perform the actions in the spirit of duty, if I perform the actions in the spirit of obligation or spirit of offering, then I have to set aside my likes and dislikes as we'll discuss. So thus karma yoga becomes a process of renunciation of inner impulses Second stage of renunciation is renunciation of ignorance when I take to the life of study and contemplation of the scriptures. In the various notions that I have, they keep on dropping as I understand the vision of the scriptures. The various notions, notions and complexes born of misunderstanding, born of ignorance, they start dropping. And that culminates into the ultimate renunciation 
of dropping of the final ego also. Thus I discover myself to be totally free. So this this is the teaching of Bhagavad Gita, sannyasa or renunciation. That is why Ramakrishna Paramahansa used to teach in a very simple way. What is the very, what's the theme of Bhagavad Gita? He says reverse the letters of Gita. So when you reverse the letters of Gita, you mean tagi. Now means tyagi. What it means is tyaga or renunciation. That's what Bhagavad Gita teaches us. <coughs> in the fifth chapter, we will see all these forms of renunciation. We will see Karma Yoga also. We'll see the renunciation with Vatsanyasa, the renunciation with knowledge, all of that Lord Krishna describes and emphasizes the place of Karma Yoga as the first day of renunciation. So we'll continue that in the next class. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyade Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Vadarayanam Sutra Bhashya Krutavande Bhagavantavunapunaha Ishvara Guru Ratmede Murti Veda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadyapta Dehaya Dakshyamurtaye Namaham Om Shanti Shanti Shanti